Today, we're going to explore the art of French cuisine through the lens of one of its most iconic dishes. It's a dish that epitomizes the warmth, hospitality, and culinary traditions of French culture. The recipe is masterfully detailed by Julia Child in Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Grab an earthy glass of Burgundy, settle in, and enjoy this delicious discussion. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim. Hi, Leigh. How are you doing? I am doing so good, though I think we're probably on our fifth or sixth false spring here. It's crazy. (laughs) My brother sent a picture of spring in Wyoming, which consisted of his backyard full of snow, to which I responded, the snow level on Tea Kettle and Columbia Mountains is becoming dangerously close to the valley floor. (laughs) I am just, I am so ready for at least, you know, let's just go with five days without snow. Right. Just five. Right. Yeah. That's all. So what's happened over there in the beautiful Pacific Northwest? Well, I just got back from a work trip from Chelan, Washington, and Mm -hmm. I actually was starting to miss spring weather in Seattle because it was so cold and windy in Chelan. (laughs) You have to drive over a mountain pass to get out to this beautiful part of central Mm -hmm. Washington where vineyards and wineries abound. And I had a really lovely moment in a winery in Chelan where I got to sample some Syrah and some beautiful rosé that I'm going to hold on to for the spring. But it was so cold. So it it was so nice to come back to my (laughs) balmy Seattle that's probably about 50 degrees, which is not balmy (laughs) at all. You know, snow is great when you don't have to live in it. It's great when you can drive by it and wave at it (laughs) as as you pass it. And of course, it's fun to visit the snow, but I guess I'm just too warm-blooded to be in, in a snowy but yeah i'm ready for spring like come on now it's aren't why aren't we in spring yet but before i know it we're gonna have triple degree summer weather so it's true and then we'll be complaining about that too but you know but yeah yeah well trials and tribulations of being an adult (laughs) so true today i'm super excited about the recipe that i picked from mastering the art of french cooking and i hope that everybody else is too so i can't wait for the reveal Right. So the glass of Burgundy was a clue, though, to be fair, there are a couple of iconic dishes that do use Burgundy wine. So without further ado, we are going to be talking about Coquevin, which literally translates to chicken or cock, a rooster in wine. And historically, this dish would have been regarded as a provincial or peasant food because it employs a technique of cooking called en casserole, which we actually talked about in episode 14, casseroles. And it's essentially a technique of slowly simmering tough or inedible cuts of meat in a liquid. So obviously this would have been considered provincial and peasant food because the wealthy could afford the more tender cuts. 
So roosters were important to stock farming and were used as breeders. But once they lost their potency, they were destined for the stock pot. Generally, these roosters lived their little gigolo lives out until about two or three years old. And to give you an idea of how truly old this is in chicken years, the chicken that you pick up at the market is between six and 12 weeks old. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? So a three-year-old rooster is bound to be pretty tough. Yeah, that's a great grandpa at that point, right? It truly is. It it did really require the braising. Otherwise, it really was pretty inedible. Now, on to the recipe. Julia and company describes this recipe as follows. The popular dish may be called coca chambertine, coca riesling, or coca whatever wine you use for cooking. It is made with either white or red wine, but red wine is more characteristic. In France, it is usually accompanied by parsley potatoes. Buttered green peas could be included if you wish a green vegetable. Serve with a young, full-bodied burgundy, boujolet, or cotes de rhone. Now, there's a couple of things that I really love in this recipe introduction or head note. The first is that she introduces the other names based upon the wines that could be used. The second is the fact that although she's provided proper names for these variations, she grants you the freedom to experiment with whatever wine you use for cooking. And the last thing is that she provides information on what it could be served with. And I love this because I think that when we're introduced to new cuisines, we often are like, how do I eat this? What can I serve with this? And Julia is helping to provide the experience of this dish outside its native land, which is so brilliant. And we've talked about about this cookbook specifically. Now, onto the ingredients of the recipe. Because of the format of this cookbook, I'm not going to read the instructions because we would be here for quite (laughs) some time. It would take a while. (laughs) It would take a while. The ingredients that are required for this recipe include lean bacon, butter, a two and a half pound to three pound fryer cut up. And I want to make a note here. I had a hard time finding a two and a half pound or three pound chicken. Most of what I came across were four to five pound chickens, which kind of really speaks to how much we have changed how chickens and really livestock have been raised for commercial processing. They're too big, in my opinion. Just saying. I actually don't disagree with you about that. And sometimes even finding a pre-cut up fryer is really challenging too. They stock what they're sent. They don't actually butcher much anymore maybe minimally and sometimes you have to ask in my experience I've had to just ask the staff like hey just cut this up for me please and they kind of look at me a little weird as if like I'm asking for something weird I probably could do it at home my butchery skills are not that good but I I I did did you do I did cut up my fryer snap (laughs) I actually don't mind doing that yeah yeah salt pepper, cognac, a full-bodied red wine, I chose burgundy, brown chicken stock, tomato paste, garlic, thyme, bay leaf, brown braised onions, sautéed mushrooms, flour, butter, and parsley. Now, in our last episode, we talked about the format of this cookbook, and I want to go into a little bit more depth here. The way that the recipes are laid out in this cookbook are in two columns, which isn't unique in itself. What is unique is that the method that is directly across from an ingredient applies 
to what you're going to be doing with that ingredient specifically. So as an example, the first ingredient listed in the recipe is a three to four ounce chunk of lean bacon. Directly across from that is the instruction to remove the rind and cut the bacon into lardons. What are lardons? Well, Julia has the answer for you. They are rectangles that are a quarter of an inch across and one inch long. Then you simmer them for 10 minutes in two quarts of water. You don't have to guess how much water. And then you rinse in cold water and then you dry them. So much like the recipes in Edna Lewis's cookbook, The Taste of Country Cooking, you feel like you have somebody right there beside you to guide you through this recipe. Now, each of these partnered ingredient and methods is divided by a line. So it's really easy to follow when you make this dish. You know exactly what ingredient or ingredients belong to what method. Now, I do want to say that I dedicated an entire day to this recipe. And I understand that it is a rare occasion that we have the luxury of dedicating so much time to a weeknight meal or any meal for that matter. But one of the things about French culture that Eric and I experienced when we were in France was the intention and the importance that was placed on mealtime. And this included breakfast, lunch, and supper. You would go to the patisserie in the morning and get your croissant, and then you would walk to the bistro and get your coffee. You had a specific place for those specific dishes. There were markets, marketplaces, but generally each of these little villages had a patisserie, a boulangerie, a bistro, a fromagerie, that you would go and pick up those specific items and every one of those places had an artisan who was creating those things, which was just it was so wonderful. Businesses closed at lunchtime for two hours, <laughs> as did the schools. We were doing a wine tasting and we were talking with a gentleman that was taking us through this wine tasting. And I asked him, I said, so the schools closed down for two hours too? He's like, yes, they do. I said, well, where do you go? Where did you go if the school was closed for two hours? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, we went home and we had lunch <laughs> with our families. And I was like, whoa, that is so cool. He goes, you don't do that in America? I said, no, a lot of us are lucky to get a half an hour for lunch. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, that's a problem. To oh, which yeah. I said, oh, yes, it is. Yeah, which is something we talked a little bit about in our school lunches episode, too. Yes. That, yeah. that idea of like how different the American school lunch culture was, just these idea that we try to cram so much into a day that unfortunately we've been taking away breaks. Anyone who's ever taken like a two hour break at work, which is incredibly rare, of course, understands how you can come back feeling really refreshed and exactly. ready and well nourished and ready to take on what you're going to encounter next. Right. Obviously in school, that would be true as well. If I can digress this just for a second, because the thought yeah. occurred to me while you were talking, this idea of the French culture and the focus on the joy, but the necessity of food, I think that may be why we have seen so many food innovations come from France. You know, we had yes. the invention of margarine, which may or may not have been a good thing. You know, that depends, I think, on how you feel about butter versus margarine, but also the idea of canning because they knew mm. that they had to address food. And right. it wasn't about convenience, but it was about making sure that the troops were well fed because you can't fight on an empty stomach. You can't do much on an empty stomach, frankly. But that this just Agreed. was a cute little thought that occurred to me while we were talking about how important it is to stop yeah. and take a break. 
but also that joy, that beauty in having a focus and to be excellent at your craft, whether it was being a fromagerie or a cheesemaker, whether it was boulangerie or patisserie or either a bread maker or a sweets maker, you don't often find those American style grocery markets that have everything. They exist. They do. Even in Paris, it's common to walk down the market street and you've got, you know, everything you need within a few shops, really. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I loved that. And then suppers. (laughs) Suppers took hours. You sat and conversed and smoked. You sat and drank wine and conversed and smoked. There's a lot of smoking in France. (laughs) There's so much smoking. But you enjoyed each other's company. It wasn't about, and even when you went to a restaurant, you never felt like the server was over your shoulder waiting for you so that they could clear the table and get another set going. Correct. Um, Not at all. Yeah. And the entertainment was the, you know, there wasn't this like, let's rush through dinner so we could go do something else. It was very much, and that style and that kind of, that, meeting at the table and that taking that time mm. I feel like that's actually kind of like where we meet you and I meet on common ground because we're both enthusing about those conversations that we have as we eat it's the origin of the name and I love that from French culture I really love it yeah I do too I so agree with you so for me to dedicate the time and energy mm. and intention in making this dish brought me back to that respect of the meal and the ingredients. But it also gave me time to learn something. And as we've talked before, this cookbook is really about learning a technique. And if you don't dedicate the time to learn a technique, then you just become a jack or jill of all trades, right? You don't focus on that skill and really learn how it can change or improve your skill in the kitchen, specifically for this cookbook. But like I said, I dedicated the entire day and I absolutely loved every minute of it. Now, there were three ingredients in this recipe that were also recipes unto themselves. The brown chicken stock, which Julia said I could use bouillon, but I chose to make the brown chicken stock, which really was just roasting chicken wings and then creating a stock with wings and some spices and some veggies. I put it into the crock pot and just let that simmer away. So it really (laughs) was kind of amazing. (laughs) It was so good. It was a lot of work, but it wasn't, it it wasn't terrible work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then there were the brown braised onions and the sauteed mushrooms. And as you mentioned in our last episode, and we talked about already is that this book is about technique. So once you learn how to make a brown chicken stock, or you learn how to brown braise or saute, you can employ that new knowledge to other ingredients and dishes. So it's not something that you're never going to use again. It's but it's something that you can use to build on your creativity within the kitchen. Now, I'm no stranger to the kitchen, but I do have to say that there were a couple of things that I learned from my very intentional cooking adventure with Mastering the Art of French Cooking. One is I tend to overcrowd my mushrooms when I'm sauteing them. In the head note for the sauteed mushrooms, Julia explains why your mushrooms exude their juice while being cooked. One of those is overcrowding. So I will not overcrowd. I will also make sure that the butter is hot enough and I will make sure that the mushrooms are dry. I Mm. 
I am a washer. I'm a mushroom washer. I know there's a big debate about whether you wash mushrooms or not. I don't soak them, but I do run them underwater. So I made sure that the mushrooms were dry before I cooked them. Two, I tend to cook on too high of heat. I actually used an infrared gun to gauge the temperature of the skillet. Julia does give you temperatures if you're using an electric skillet. So I use those temperatures to determine what my controls of the stove actually provided. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, these are the things that are kind of fun that we're exploring. Like when we were with the Women's Suffrage Cookbook. And we're like, maybe boiling isn't boiling. Yeah, I have a tendency right. to, to, to cook too high as well. So yeah. I love that you did that. Yeah, that was a really good experiment for me because I was like, oh, clearly I thought that number on the control would be 160 degrees, but nope, it wasn't. <laughs> so to prove our ovens and stovetops are still not in exact I science. I love that. <laughs> right? even, even in the 21st century, we're still struggling with what is hot and slow and quick and anyway. Yeah. Right. For sure. And three, I enjoy a good flambe. Now, this is the second recipe that I chose that incorporates this technique. It was completely coincidental. Um, sure. <laughs> but, I believe you. Now, flambeing can be a little bit intimidating at first, but it's such a cool thing. You're like, I did that. Mm -hmm. I controlled that flame. Mm hmm. Mostly. And we <laughs> talked at length about the impacts that fire had on our kitchens and our diets in episode 38, Fire and Ice. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about the flame in the kitchen, I highly recommend listening to that episode. Yeah, no, me too. Exactly what we're talking about with the ovens and modern ovens. We take a lot for granted, but how we got here is fascinating. And it's we're still not even there yet, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would be remiss not to talk about the end product, which was mm. absolutely heavenly. I bet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Now, the one thing that I will say can be a little bit disconcerting for people is that the chicken is mahogany in color because you're using red wine. So if you're expecting a white chicken, you're not going to get it from this. But it is such a beautiful color. Mm -hmm. And then the mushrooms provide this earthy flavor that really works so well with the burgundy. And then the onions bring this sweetness mm. that they would not have otherwise provided if they would have just been added to the braising liquid right. if they hadn't been brown braised first. And the sauce. Oh, my gosh. The sauce. The extra time that I did take to make the homemade brown chicken stock and a nice bottle of Burgundy. I did splurge a little on the Burgundy. I didn't use our regular $3 table wine. <laughs> <laughs> Though I could have because Julia says I could. She does. Yep. And I have to wonder if part of the amazing taste was due in part to the intention that I put in to cooking this dish. And... The feeling of accomplishment, because I felt really accomplished after I had finished cooking this dish. As you should. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we all know when you cook with intention, when you cook with love and open mind and open heart, it does taste different. It tastes it better. If I'm in a restaurant, for example, I can taste if the kitchen is feeling rushed, if they're feeling unhappy yes. that night. It comes through in everything. And it's not just a service thing, because you can have a rush kitchen and it's super happy, you know, super happy server but they don't match. I think it really depends on what you are anticipating and anticipation right. is a big factor in this as well. Yes, for uh, sure. You know, the being home with all those smells going on all day 
it whets your appetite <laughs> quite literally. It, do- <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it was just a beautiful meal. It was. Oh, well, you know, Coco Van is one of those dishes that gets you wondering which came first, the rooster or the wine. And since we talked a bit about the intention of braising the old rooster to tenderize it, maybe we should talk for a minute about its hallmark wine that goes into the dish. I love the dichotomy of Julia. This is one of those dishes that showcases both her attention to detail Mm. and her absolute point about mastering technique paired with this sort of really playful nonchalance about it all, right? You yes. any wine of which you have sufficient quantity to braise, and yet the quality of the wine will reflect an outcome of your dish. Yes. Um, you know, I've definitely noticed that too when I've cooked with the $2 whatever wine versus, <laughs> hey, I had a dinner party, I've got some leftover, like, let's do something with it. And it really does make a difference. Now, when it comes to wine, I'm a complete and utter novice, but I've always loved the color of Burgundy, which gets its Mm. name from the wine. And I knew that the color had something to do with the wine. So I decided, well, you know what? I'm going to just look it all up and figure this out. So what I learned is that this dish does traditionally come from the Burgundy region of eastern France. This is an area southeast of Paris. And this area has been making wine since the Roman times. It's divided into five wine-producing areas, Chablis, Côte de Nuit, Côte de Bonne. Um, I am not sure about these pronunciations. Chalonnais and Mekonnais, I believe is how you pronounce that last one. And these all have a long history of producing using typically one of two or both famous grape varieties, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Obviously, Pinot Noir is a red grape. You're going to get a red wine. Chardonnay is a white grape. You're going to pretty much yield a white wine from that. And since Cocovan is usually made with red wine, I focused on those tasting notes. What we're looking for here is aromas of red, black fruits, cherry, blackberry, right? Those kinds of things Mm -hmm. with subtle earthy undertones and a light oaky touch from barrel aging. And Leah, as you noted already, this was a peasant dish well before it was discovered by French royalty. Isn't that always, this is true of champagne as well, right? For sure. So newer and younger wines were more likely deployed in the cooking. While quality is important, you're also probably not really using the, you know, the super older, finer stuff. Right. Quality is really important because poor quality or overly tannic wine is going to absolutely overpower some of those beautiful flavors that you're pulling through the browned mushrooms the Mm. onions right it's Mm -hmm. gonna just get washed out and even alter the taste sometimes you know you know how it is sometimes if you have like a bitter component in your dish something else tastes different than what you're expecting so it's just really important that you use a wine of which you would like to actually maybe drink a glass or two or three while you're cooking and then (laughs) also while you're eating everything comes full circle But what an amazing experience. I'm so glad you had that. And only a little better that I couldn't join you for dinner. I know. That would have been so nice. But now speaking of Burgundy, that is one of the areas when Eric and I were in France that we did visit. And Eric had beef bourguignon and Mm. I had coquevin. I don't even know if it was that good, but it was so (laughs) magical because we were in the area. Talking about authenticity, right? Yeah. Or accuracy. 
we were in the area that it was born in, and we were drinking the wines that were from that specific region. It was so great. I love being able to experience those types of dishes in their actual regions, which is so fun. It's also very fun to make it at home. Now, you've opened a door on a thought. We're going here. All right. Does it matter if it's good if you're enjoying it? Obviously, these dishes are the basis of some really fond memories. We've talked right. about this trip before. I'm, again, super jealous I didn't know you. That. <laughs> like, jumped in on that trip. Yeah, does it matter? What is this mythical, perfect dish that sometimes we have in our minds? Can we even get there realistically? Right. Because we yeah. all have different bodies, different taste buds, different preferences. Right. Yeah. And really, does it matter? Does it matter? If you thought it was good, isn't that enough? Right. Right. I think that is, I think that's the point that I thought that it was good. The experience, the entire experience that I had around that was amazing. Yeah. You carry this memory too, this dish. Back home with you. I remember a lamb dish from Nice, France, that set a standard for lamb dishes. And a pork chop with fig sauce that blew my Mm. mind. That has implanted as the ideal dish. Even if I go back to that place, I'll never have that again because chef could be in a mood. Different chef. Right. It's true, right? And the ingredients are not the same. Mm -mm. I was thinking about this as I was making this dish, too, that... I will never make the same dish again, right? Because the ingredients are all different. The next time I buy the chicken, it will be from a different producer. It will have a different flavor. The onions probably will not taste the same and neither will the mushrooms. And then the terroir of the wine. Even terroirs shift over time. Like, oh, this was a good year. Yeah. No, it's fun. This is what I love about food is it's so ephemeral. Yes. And yet we have these amazing recipes and these amazing collections like Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And she's so clear. They're so clear. And I don't always mean to give all the credit to Julia. I, she was such a force in this threesome yes. that yes. And it's obvious that her hand is basically all over everything. Just reading through the book has already changed up how I've been cooking at home. Yeah. I love that. Me Even too. if I'm not making a French dish. Right. It's like, oh, technique. Picking up new techniques. Love it. Technique. Love it. I'm going to braise everything all year. (laughs) I'm like fascinated (laughs) by braising. I love braising. I love braising. (laughs) Well, and sauce, right? Because we were talking about, I think in the last episode about the sauces, how I felt like I really wanted to get a handle on that. I could apparently go on about this because I'm like fascinated and hungry. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Always hungry. Always hungry. The the other alternative name for this podcast, always hungry. (laughs) I know there's one out there called the Never Full, which I love that. I think that's a cute name, but the always hungry is, yeah, basically life over here. Here as well. (laughs) For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at As We Eat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. We have some interesting questions out there for you to answer. 
And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and make sure that you do schedule in some time on your entire day of cooking this recipe that you stop and spare a couple of minutes to rate the podcast on Apple podcast, Podchaser, or Spotify. We would be so appreciative. It really helps us to build the community of food enthusiasts like you. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be really honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. Subscribers have all kinds of interesting perks, as well as access to exclusive content and more. We're sure you'll find a subscription that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project, serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research, with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion. Thanks for listening. Now go get something to eat. Yes. Ba ba da da ba 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 